I want to say a big thank you, and I'm not sure, I don't want to say names because you got my chair, big boy, thank you very much. Um, I'm afraid I'll leave somebody out, but I just want to thank those of you that decorated the inside of this room in, in, in the festive way, so thank you very much. Really, really do appreciate that. Uh, we are going to be closing out the study we've been doing in Job today. And then what we're going to do is we're going to do an Advent study in the, the month of December. We're going to have some really some special things uh, to celebrate uh, Advent and the, and the coming and the birth, uh, I should say, of our Lord. So I, I am excited about that. But I want to take a moment and uh, we just sang whole, about holiness. And I don't know if we ever really stopped to contemplate what holiness is. I mean, holiness is the beauty and the perfection of God. And it's easy to say that. It's a whole nother thing to really contemplate and reflect on that. And this past uh, week, uh, which has been a great week, I was sitting in my room and I was studying and I had the window open and the sun just hits in, the, in, the, in that window just right. It's warm, it's bright, I really enjoy it. And as I was reading about holiness, I know this sounds stupid and I've said this before, don't do this too long, but I wanted, I wanted to kind of feel that. I wanted to understand that. And so I, I, I took a moment, just a moment, and I looked into the sun with my eyes straight up. And I couldn't do it for but, but a few seconds. It was just overwhelming. And, and then I, I shut my eyes and continued to look into the sun so that I could, I could still sense the brightness of it without it blinding me. But that's what the holiness of God is. It's, it's like, and, and God is present here. It's like if, if we were to see him right now, we'd be looking into the sun and we, we, couldn't, we couldn't look very long because we'd see his beauty and his perfection and we would know our brokenness and our mess. And so I want us just to, for a moment, I'm going to bow my knee here, and I'm going to give you a moment to kind of just contemplate that as we go into the last study in the book of Job. So, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump into it. Father, I pray that you would give us a reverent fear of who you are. And I pray you would speak through me as we finish the study of the book of Job, God, knowing I have nothing to say, but you have everything to say. If anything comes from me, I pray it's not heard, received, understood, that it just stays right here. But Father, the truth that we need in our hearts and heads, um, God, bless me with the ability to share that that we would leave here different because of it. And we pray and ask your blessing on this time of teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are closing out the book of Job here. So you might want to find in your Old Testament table of contents, go there, it's about a third of the way down, is the book of Job. And whatever page that corresponds to in your Bible, we're going to be the very last chapter in the book of Job, Job 42 and what we're going to be looking at this morning, and, and really it, uh, much of this will be a recap, and I think this is really, uh, we're going to look at chapter 42, but I want to go back and I want to recap what we looked at in chapters 1 through 41. And, and as I, the way I see this, the book of Job really will serve you and serve me best for the time that we find ourselves in, in suffering. And in particular, I'm talking about kind of the innocent, and I put that in quotes, suffering. It's the kind of suffering where we go, I'm not aware that I did anything. I don't understand why this is happening to me, whether it's a diagnosis, 
uh, the loss of a job, whatever it might be, where you're just suddenly thrown into chaos. And I, I hope that through our study of the book of Job that you'll be able to pull out your, your, your notes in a way. If you, don't, if you don't have notes, well, we, we post them on our Facebook page so you, go, you can go back there and get them. But it, it'll be like a little bit of, a, of an owner's manual. How do I handle the suffering? What do I do? Well, I, I think the notes will, will help you a great deal in that way. Because what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about the force that is suffering. Now, in our existence, in our lives, there are a number of forces that impact us. Take gravity, for instance. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful we have gravity because it, it keeps us tethered to the earth. Imagine if we just kind of didn't have gravity and we just started floating up. And if we went too high, man, we, we would freeze to death. We would die. I mean, if your car all of a sudden went off the road, and I mean, that would not turn out well. Now, I'm not real happy about gravity when um, it's my desire to dunk a basketball. Or maybe when you're on the roof and you slip, that's when gravity is not your friend. So there's, there's that force of gravity. Uh, I think of centrifugal force. Uh, centrifugal force is, is wonderful when you're on that amusement ride. You ever been on the amusement ride that spins around really fast, you stick up against the side, and the, and the, the thing that you're standing on all of a sudden drops out, and you're just stuck on there, and it becomes the vomit comet, right? You're about ready to throw up. But you're like, wow, this centrifugal force is really cool. Or when you're just trying to maybe dry your clothes um, in the washing machine or try to get all the water out, centrifugal force helps you. And centrifugal force is that force that moves away from the center and it goes out. It makes the wash cycle or the spin cycle of washing our clothes work. The other way is, is force that comes towards the middle, and that's centripetal force. And, and that's a force that works from the outside coming back in. Like uh, you, you'd have a hard time playing tetherball if centripetal force didn't exist. Because every time you hit the ball, it would go crazy flying off. But there's the, the, the tension of the rope that, that the ball's attached to, it, it allows for the centripetal force to have a good game of tetherball, which I was really hesitant to bring that up. Has anybody played tetherball in the last year? Raise your hand. All right, we got a few people. Thank you very much, Todd. All right, very good. Okay, so that, that illustration was not completely lost. But hopefully you understand what I'm saying. And we, we feel centrifugal force, right? When we take a corner really fast, not that we would ever do that, but when we, should we happen to do that, and you feel yourself kind of go up against, you know, the side of the car, you're just thankful that the car's there because otherwise you'd go flying out of the car. So there's these forces in our lives that impact us. Well, today I want to talk about suffering and the centrifugal and centripetal force of suffering. So to do that, you've turned a page or chapter 42 in the book of Job. We're going to explore the force of suffering that is on us. And the idea is that we don't want this force to ruin us or wreck us. And here's what we have to accept. Suffering is a part of the human condition. No one is exempt from suffering at all. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how strong you are, where you came from, what your education is. Uh, nothing, it has nothing to do with it. We are subject to the force of suffering. And the question is... Does it become a centrifugal force in that it pushes you away from God? Or is there a centripetal element that actually draws you closer? And I'm hoping as we go through this today, and as we finish, like I said, we'll have our little owner's manual so that we can use suffering when it happens in a way that works for us and not against us. So with that being said, let's understand quickly. Let's go back. What happened in the book of Job? We've, we've looked at the first 41 chapters. Well, we have to go back and realize that, remember, there was in the beginning, in Job chapters 1 and 2, 
God was bragging about Job in heaven. And, and for a reason we just won't have time to go into now, Satan was there. And, and he heard God say about Job, have you considered my man Job? There's no one like him. To which Satan responds, well, of course, does, what, does Job really uh, serve God for nothing? The implication being that, yeah, Job is this great man you're bragging about, but it's because the, he's blessed. You've blessed him in so many ways. And so, so, so begins the divine wager in which God says, okay, fine. I will give you power over Job. And he does it two different times. First, he says, don't touch Job, to which Satan doesn't touch Job, but Job loses everything he has. He loses his children. Uh, he loses his possessions. Uh, it, gone. And we saw that Job responded, unlike his wife, who said to Job, curse God and die. My friends, that's centrifugal spiritual force right there, right? Job says, well, who am I to do that? God gives and God takes. There's centripetal force there. God, Job was not leaving God. He was, he was draw, driving closer to him. And then came round two in which uh, Satan was then given permission to inflict upon Job, not take his life, but inflict upon him these, these sores and, and a, a painful existence. And that's when we begin to see Job start to wobble. And there's a series of uh, conversations that Job's friends have with him as he endures this suffering. It keeps going. Anybody there? Anybody thinking, man, you're describing my story. I am suffering, and I'm getting sick and tired of it, right? I mean, we've all maybe been there. Uh, some of you are there right now, and, and, um, and don't shoot me, but it's going to happen again to you. That's the human condition. And Job is getting frustrated. And that centrifugal uh, force is starting to, to amp up. And he's starting to, his attitude is changing. His complaint against God is changing. And you remember as we were going through it, he's like going, give me my day in court, God. Where are you? Listen to me. Well, in, in, uh, in chapter 38, uh, Job gets his day in court. And this is what God says to him. And I'm just going to just read you a couple of verses just to give you the tone so it sets up 42. It says in chapter 38, verses 2 through 4, if you want to turn to Job 38, 2 through 4, we'll get to 42 in a moment. But he says, this is God saying to Job, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then in verse 34 and 35, he says, Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Can you send out lightning bolts and they go? Do they report to you, here we are? This is God's response to Job. Chapter 40. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I placed my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply twice, but now I cannot, I can add nothing. And then in chapter, the rest of chapter 40, verse 6, you think God, Job's there, right? He's like, okay, okay, I, I, I won't say another thing. I'm I'm done. I'm done. You know what God says to that? I'm not done. I'm not done. 
He says, get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you, dis- would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? And then he goes to chapter 41 because he's not finished. And then we come to chapter 42, and this is Job's response. He's heard it. He's, he's been frustrated. He's pounded his fist on the table saying, give me my day in court. He gets his day in court. He hears God just showers him with who he is and questioning Job. Can you really understand? Are you really, do you really have that kind of pay grade? And Job in chapter 42, verse 1, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything. And no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who, counsel, who conceals my counsel <clears throat> with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. So what I want us to recognize is that Job, he wobbled. He initially started out kind of centripetally and was driving closer and staying towards God, but then it continued. And it was a chronic suffering, and it started to change him, and he started to push away and demanding his day in court, and God gives him his day in court, and God corrects him. And so the the point I want to take from chapter 42, and really, in one sense, this is a major point in the book of Job, and that is that suffering, my friends, will either attract you to God or alienate you from God. There's no middle ground. That when you enter suffering, when suffering happens to you, you need to recognize, and I need to recognize in that moment, there's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland here saying, hey, I'm not going either way. I'm good right where I am. No, that's not how it works. Suffering will either, because it's, it's a force in our lives, it will either push you away from God or it will draw you in. And that's what I want us to do this morning is I want us to explore, okay, as we've gone through the book of Job, how do we take the inevitable suffering and, and drive into God and not away from him? We see Job who drove into God. We see his wife who said, curse God and die, who clearly was driven away from God. So in the first six verses that we just read, Job's response, did you, do you recognize that Job acknowledges, he acknowledges God's sovereignty. He says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. He acknowledges God's sovereignty. He acknowledges God's omniscience, that God is all-knowing and that there are things that are too great that Job can even understand because he says, um, where, I just lost my place here. Okay, uh, yes, he, he, he says, you ask me who is this who counsels, who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand. So Job comes to realize I'm not there. I have a limited knowledge of what's going on. And that leads him to something I think very significant in, chapter, in verse five. He says, I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job acknowledges that he has an encounter with God. Prior to this, he had been frustrated, but in this moment, he has this encounter with God that that changes him. Throughout listening to what, in chapters 38 through 41, he has this encounter with God. And and there's not a physical seeing of God. He doesn't physically see God. He has my eyes. He's, He's spiritually awakened 
to who God really is and who he really is. He's awakened to God's beauty. He's awakened to God's glory. He's awakened to God's power. He's awakened to who God really is and who he really is. And that, my friends, is what suffering will do. You will have an encounter with God in suffering. I will have an encounter in with God in suffering. And we will go one of two directions. There is no middle ground. We will either curse his name. We will walk away from him. And you've seen people that have done it, some of you in here. Your relationship with God is hurting, if not on life support, because you've taken suffering and you've been involved in suffering and you've, you've, you've centrifugally moved away. Or you go the direction of crying out for God. Where do I go? Who else do I turn to in this? And you're drawn closer to him. And, and there's that encounter. I, I think of, of Peter, and uh, if you guys have watched The Chosen, I love the way this was depicted in that series. But it's when, it's when Peter, the fisherman, is told by Jesus, who maybe has never fished in his life, how to fish. And in uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 4 through 8, it says, when he had finished speaking, he being Jesus, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but, you're, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So here's Peter telling Jesus, that's not going to work. Jesus says, drop the nets, it's going to work. And he catches more than he ever thought he could. And, and how would you respond if you were Peter? My goodness, would you, cha-ching, would you see the money sign? This is going to be awesome. Thank you, Jesus, thank you. No, he says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knee and said, go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. You see, when you have an encounter, a true encounter with God, you don't see it for what you get. You see it for who you are. And that's what Job experienced. Job encountered God and saw God for who he was and himself for who he was. And suffering reveals that. Suffering reveals our understanding of God and our understanding of ourselves. And what does Job do in verse 6? In light of this, he has this moment just like Peter who says, get away from me. Job, in the same way, verse 6 says, Therefore I take back my words, and I repent in dust and ashes. My friends, we've all been there when, we, when we're suffering and we're angry at God. And, and we're doing what, uh, what, what God says to Job in chapter 40, verse 8. Would you really challenge my justice? No, would you really question the right way to do this? Would you really question, given what I've just said, were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did that? You don't understand squat, Job. How can you judge me? Because is it not possible that because what you don't understand doesn't mean that there still can't be good in what I'm doing? And we need to do the same thing that Job does. And this is hard when we're in the midst of suffering, but we need to repent when we attempt to stand in judgment over God as to what is the right way of understanding suffering. And Job does repent. And repentance is when we actually have conviction. I mean, there's a grief there's a godly sorrow, Paul says, but it's got the, the guardrails of grace and mercy. It's when you really get down, your translations say, I despise myself. If you look at the footnotes in, in my Bible, there's a footnote that, 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 that says, instead of, therefore I take back my words, it says, 
I despise myself. There's, there's a sense of, my goodness, like Peter, get away from me. Get away from me. You, you, you come to this place of conviction and grief, but the guardrails of grace and mercy are so important. And Jesus brings that. And that's how, that's how you change. That's how I change. That's how Job changed. And it's wonderful. It is wonderful when we have that, the tenderness of grace and mercy to repent. As Job did because he questioned the justice of God. And then let's keep, let me keep reading. I got, there's, there's through 42 through 1 through 6. Let's continue on. And then we're going to jump down to the recap, Okay. Verse 7, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept the prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Then Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. All his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to his house and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a kesethah. That's a new one on me. And a gold earring. So the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first daughter Jemina, his second, I should have read these beforehand, and the third, Kareen. There's some names there for you. If anybody's looking for some names and you really want to mess with your, you know, their, their eventual future teachers, go at it right there, Okay. No woman as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land, and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. Then Job died old and full of days. I don't want you to think this is the first time I read this. I didn't mean it that way. I should have read it enough to work on those names, okay? I just, somebody who heard that went, what did he just say? So... Anyways, the the point I want to make here is what we see in Job is we see the restoration of Job. 2X, to be specific. And I don't want us for a moment to think that when we're in suffering that that's going to be our story and how it ends too as well. You see, the book of Job is really about God being God and doing what God wants to do because he's God. And what, what I want us to understand in here, is there's nothing in here that says that Job deserved the restoration that he got because he didn't deserve it. And we don't deserve it either. And we just have to accept that's a hard fact to swallow. But we have to accept that God is doing what he wants to do because he's God. And sometimes that means that God can sovereignly choose to restore some and not others. And I, I realize that is a, I'm walking on very tender ground right now. That there are people who are struggling and suffering with their health. And, and you're just thinking, if, if I just stay faithful enough, that God's going to restore me. And, and my hope and prayer is that is God's sovereign will for you. But it may not be. And what do we do with that? 
what we have to do is what, what Job had to do. Job didn't know what was coming. And, and when we get to 42 and Job repents, he doesn't know that the restoration's coming. But, he, but he, he's saying to himself, where do I go with this? And when he comes to his senses and realizes that he doesn't understand like God understands, that he knows the only way he can really go and the only place he can go and the only person he can go to back is God to help him with his suffering. And that's what we have to do is we have to trust that God has a good reason for it that we don't understand because we're not God. And I realize that is so hard. But you can see now why suffering is a force that will either attract you to God or alienate you. There's no middle ground to this. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back and recap, looking what we looked at rather quickly, chapters 1 through 41. Because the whole idea is I want us to be prepared for when suffering happens. And I want us to work in a centripetal way where we're driven towards him and not pushed away. As you know, many have been, and maybe some even in this room, are, are, you feel yourself being pulled that way right now. You're, you're a little further away from God because you just don't understand suffering. Whether Maybe it might not even be in your own life. It might be in a, the life of a loved one. Or you might just look at the, the world in general and say, how does that happen? So let's look back, chapters 1 through 41, and let me recap. And, and the first thing I want us to recognize, going back to chapters 1 and 2, was that when suffering happens in your life, the tendency, and I understand why, the tendency is to think I'm doing something wrong. And, and we would like for suffering to kind of be connected that way, a one-for-one -one cause and effect relationship. And there is. I mean, the Scripture does speak to When we do something really stupid, sinful, that God disciplines us, that kind of say, hey, don't do that again. That's not good for you. But we're talking about the suffering that, that's not connected that way. That's what was happening to Job. Remember, God said, hey, there's no one else like him. And yet suffering comes into his life. That, that's the kind of suffering that we're talking about. And so what we see here, and Job is the one with all his friends telling him, hey, what, Job, just confess what you've done. And the suffering will be over, dude. Come on. And Job's going, I can't because there's not, I didn't do anything wrong in the sense that this suffering would explain and that came, we kind of had to bump into the reality that God has a heavenly purpose for suffering, but our adversary Satan has an evil purpose for it. And the heavenly purpose, as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, as we had the bird's eye view that Job didn't have as we went through the book of Job, is this heavenly purpose is to test if our supreme love for God is in him alone. That is what he wants to know. And I shouldn't even say it that way because he knows. He wants us to know. It's a pop test, not for him. It's a pop test for us. He wants to know, am I everything? Am I the means to an end or am I the end itself? Because if I'm not the end itself, then we're going to have problems. And suffering is going to cripple you. It will wreck you because you will not have someone to turn to that you fully trust in the only way that I can provide that. And so the suffering has a heavenly purpose. It doesn't mean you can't love other things. I love other things. It doesn't mean we can't love other things. The question is, what is the ultimate thing that we love? And God is saying, if it's not me, there's going to be problems. 
and you will be crippled by suffering. And I'm just asking you right now, could you honestly say, if you stood before God as a judge in a court of law and he were to say, am I your supreme love? Yes, Your Honor, I, I, yes, you're my supreme love. Would you prove it, please? Could you prove it? If they pulled out your bank records, if they pulled out your calendar, if they were able to unplug, you know, read your thoughts and get every thought you've ever had, it was, it was like on the hard drive in your life. With, if they were looking at every relationship that you had, and I say the same for me, would we be declared innocent? Yes, I am the supreme love of your life, or no, because that is what suffering will do. It will test you and test me in that way. I, I think I mentioned through our study the, 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 from John Piper he, the, the expression Christian hedonism. He wrote a book called Desiring God, The, the Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. It, super impactful book. And I know it sounds like, how do those two words go together? But his, his point was that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. When you and me, when our lives are most satisfied in the things of God, in our relationship with God, when we're honoring God, when we're most satisfied there, he is most glorified. And that is what suffering, or excuse me, suffering will reveal. What is your true love? Now, the other side Satan wants to use it to question, for us to question God's love and his power in life. Because we look at suffering and we say, either one, God is not loving. He might be all powerful, but he's just not loving, so he doesn't really care. Or the other way is that God loves us, but he's just not all powerful to change suffering. That is exactly where Satan wants us to go. He wants us to, to start to doubt because if, if we have the, these, these unguarded doubts, and by unguarded doubts, I mean, if we just let these doubts kind of sit in our head and sit in our thoughts and, and, and impact how we interact with God, that begins to eat away at our faith and trust in him. But if we blanket those, and believe me, we're all gonna have doubts. I mean, faith is faith, it's not fact. That, that means there's some understanding we don't have. There might be something we're not sure about. But we clothe that in our faith and it doesn't impact how we live our lives. I mean, I, I would say some of you would say, I'm, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus and, and I believe that Jesus came and that he lived a perfect life in my place and that he died so that God's judgment would be uh, upon him and not me and I've got my faith in him so that I'm right with God. And I'm 99% sure that's going to be a good thing. But if that 1% becomes and just sits out there and it's not clothed in faith where you're, where you're operating and acting based on what your faith says and not what that 1% says, then all is good. But a lot of times that 1% just sittles out, sits out there and your faith doesn't swallow it up and it just starts to chirp and it, and it becomes 2% and 3%. And before you know it, you're centrifugally moving away from God. And here's the amazing thing. This is what I learned about God. God takes suffering that people say, I can't understand why God, how a loving God allows suffering. And God uses suffering to show his love in an expression that we'll never ever see again. And, and with the same magnitude in that Jesus came, perfectly lived his life out, and then he did not deserve to die, but he did die as an expression of God's love. So he takes the suffering of Christ and he turns Satan's attempt to use it for evil purposes on its head. Second, 
observation or, or, or I think something we need to kind of put into our owner's manual, and that is suffering is more challenging for Christ followers. It just hurts more. If you're a follower of Jesus, suffering hurts more because there's this element of betrayal or seemingly this element of betrayal. You perceive that, that why is this happening to me? I, I'm do, like Job said, I, I'm, I'm doing right. I'm doing the right things. What happens is when you're doing the right things, when, when, when we, and we have to fight this all the time, when we kind of fall into a religious way of thinking, and that is if I do good, then I'll get good from God. And when suffering comes in, I'm like, I've been doing good. Now there's a sense of entitlement. And that is where the anger and the angst comes from. That is where like Job, you start saying, answer me, God. And you've been there. I've been there. That is when the centrifugal force of suffering starts to push you out. And that is by design. Satan wants to destroy and to distract and to defeat. And it hurts more to the Christ follower. And we just have to recognize that. And, and the grace that God has given us. You see, we want what we deserve. But here's what God's grace is. Do you know God's grace is not giving us what we deserve? And that is something that's in operation every moment of every day. God, once you become a follower of Jesus and put your faith and trust in him, God relates to you on grace. And that means every moment of every day, God is not giving you what you deserve. Praise God for that. Because what we deserve is eternal separation from God because of our sin full lives because of the brokenness that's inside of us. What God gives us, my friends, is what we need. God gives us what we need, and he uses suffering to shape us into the likeness of Jesus. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But it's a struggle. Now, what about those who don't believe in God? Well, to those who don't believe, you really don't have a reason to complain. You see, when you complain, to complain is to acknowledge that something should be different than it is. And when you say something should be, the should be, really you're talking about some standard out there, some absolute standard that should be, but it isn't, and I'm suffering because of it, and I'm angry, and that should be really is God. So if, if, if you're struggling and you're complaining, and you think things should be this way and they're not, my friends, you're bumping into God and how you've been created in the image of God. And you'll forever struggle until you acknowledge who he is. And if there is no should be, then you have no real hope in suffering. You see, to Christ's followers, our hope is that Jesus and God's using it to shape us into the likeness of Christ like he was doing with Job. He was testing Job. Imagine if there was no test and that suffering was just a part of life and that's just how it is. Well, then who really should complain? And I'll say to the one who does believe that God exists, but you're, you're kind of on this, this centrifugal just force going right out, out away from God and you're angry and you're mad because you're saying God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing and I'm angry. Why is suffering in the world? To which you have to also accept that if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and that's what's making you mad, then you also have to accept that in his all-powerfulness and in his all-knowingness that he has a good answer that you cannot understand. And I cannot understand. It's the Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 answer. And that, my friends, is challenging. Thirdly, 
is we must understand the purpose of life before we can ever understand the purpose of suffering. You see, when we're suffering and we're angry, we're saying, this is not how my life should be. And that presumes that you understand what your life is about. Because you're saying that suffering is wrong, and that presupposes that you're understanding what life should be, and it shouldn't involve suffering. But the only way to find out what life is all about is to go to the one who made us. Go to the one who created us. And life, my friends, is about supernaturally through the Spirit of God being shaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And if that is what life is all about, that helps us frame suffering. It helps us understand suffering. And I mean that God wants to use suffering to shape you and me into the likeness of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus suffered. And many times Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you're going to suffer. Are you ready for that? Count the cost of that. And so we must understand the purpose of life before we can ever really understand and frame suffering in a way that makes sense, that works where we move towards him and not away from him. And then lastly, as you notice, we've just, through 42 chapters, 42 chapters, God does not do the one thing that Job wants. He does not do the one thing that we want when we superimpose ourselves into Job. Do you know what that is? God never answers the question, why? Never. As much as Job wants it, as much as you and I want it, he never answers the question, why? But he does it for Job's benefit and not his detriment. You see, if God had said to Job, hey, Job, dude, it's going to be bad for a while. But man, 2x, baby, 2x. I'm going to double everything you got. Oh. All right, man. So every time he starts to really feel like, I'm about to complete 2X, 2X. Okay, 2X, 2X, I'm back in. And who wins if that happens? Satan wins the bet. Because Satan says to God, does Job love you for nothing? To which God says, let's test him. And that's what we have to recognize. Is that God uses suffering to test what our ultimate love is and if it's God or not. And I know that's hard. I know that's difficult. I know we want a better answer than that, but we are not going to get one. God has spoken in Job. And I want to go back to, and I want to close with this. You remember he talks to Job, he talks to Job's friends, and he tells them, you guys were wrong in what you said. And Job was right. Now, we know that some of the things Job said were whacked. But his friends were telling him that your suffering is solely explained because of some sin in your life, that God is acting out of retribution. To which Job is going, that's not it. That's not it. There's something else in play here. And Job was right. And then Job spoke right when he acknowledged to God, I know nothing. You are right. I know nothing. So he spoke right in that way. And then, do you remember what he did? He tells Job's friends, make a sacrifice, take it to Job. And then he tells Job, my servant, pray on their behalf. You see what happened? Job passed the test. 
And because he passed the test, Job sends, or God sends Job's friends with an offering, recognizing that what they did was wrong. And then he asks Job, his servant, to pray over them, and it says that God would then release them from the foolishness and what the punishment was going to be. Does that sound like anybody else? You see, what we have to understand is the Old Testament, every book in the Old Testament points to Jesus because the Bible is all about Jesus. And Job, my friends, in this moment is pointing to Jesus. You see, Jesus was sent out into the wilderness and Satan tempted him. And Jesus withstood all those temptations. And then Jesus became the sacrifice for all of us. And he took upon himself on the cross the sins of the world. And God did not spare his life, though Jesus prayed and asked for that. But then God raised him three days later. And those who put their faith and trust in him will not, let the, will not be penalized and punished eternally for their foolishness. In the same way that Job's friends, God relieved them because of Job's intervention. He does the same through Christ. So my challenge for you this week is to repent from any stored up anger for past or present suffering. If you've been holding on to it, let it go right now. God, I'm sorry. I give it to you. Let it go. If you're in the midst of it right now and you've been feeling that centrifugal push out, say, I'm, I'm done. No, no. I, I stand corrected and I'm going to move back. And then evaluate your readiness for the suffering that's coming, my friends. And I would take the notes that, that we've been uh, giving you over the five-week study and, and just make it your playbook. Make it your owner's man. For when it happens, just go back to it. So that you move centripetally towards him in the midst of suffering and not centrifugally away from him, okay? God, we thank you. We love you. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for Job and not only how he ultimately did not give up, but how he points to Jesus who lived, died, and was resurrected so that we could have life and that we could face the suffering we're going to face in a way that is redemptive, that works to shape us and is purposeful to make us into the people you've always wanted us to be. And I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.